This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and tell a friend to help them find Out of Water also. Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lautenschlager, and joining me today back from vacation, once again on the microphone, is uh, our pastor of education, Reverend Sam Kastensmith. And Sam, we had Will Bushman filling in for you uh, last podcast. Yeah, he did great. I thought so, too. You know, I, I, I said this actually on the podcast, uh, and I think there's a lot of times where this happens, where people are like, oh, that's the youth guy. And not necessarily just at our church, but at all churches. I think that people look at the youth pastors as that's the youth guy. But in most cases, and it is the case here, our youth guy is a seminary student on his way to ordination. So it's like, you know, Will's a sharp guy. He knows a lot about scriptures and um, he's got some good insights. And so it was a lot of fun getting him on. Yeah, I'd never, in listening to it, I had never thought of how courageous Peter actually was in the midst of the denials, you know, to actually be there to follow him into the lion's den and really think through, like, past one denial, past two denials, he's still hanging on, you know, right? uh, risking, risking. I just never thought of that. I thought it was, I thought that was a good insight. Yeah, it's like when Will said, you know, like you're sitting there and your boy Malchus is just next to you there going, what are you still doing (laughs) hanging around? You cut my ear off, you know? Yeah, one of the the interesting things I was thinking about, and it's just literary stuff, but I was thinking, you know, in that moment when Peter takes the sword and he strikes Malchus's ear, I was wondering if the sovereignty of God was thinking, you know, he's going to take a different sword and strike the ears of his enemies. Mm. You know, the sword of the word, the, mm. the spirit of God will strike the ears of enemies to transform them into friends. That's where Jesus wants Peter to go. Hmm. Not out of animosity, but out of transformation. Anyway, just a thought that occurred to me as I was listening to you guys talk. It was uh, it was a good episode. If you if for some reason, folks, you didn't catch that, uh, you want to go back and listen to that. Uh, that's part four of our – it was on Peter's denials, so it was pretty good. So this week we're coming to the day after the resurrection, and we're going to be looking at John chapter 20. Um, and when I was looking at this for our study notes that we put together this week, um, I sort of saw this as a series of scenarios. It's like you have, um, you know, there are, there are like four different things here where people encounter Jesus or, or the lack of Jesus at the beginning, the empty tomb after his resurrection and and believe that he's risen. That's what they're, they're believing mm-hmm. that he's come back from the dead. And, and there's different levels here. It's like, you know, it, we start off with one thing. And by the time you get to the bottom of the list, you've got a guy that's saying, if I can't touch him, feel him under my hands and fingers, I'm not going to believe. Mm-hmm. So, and, and that Jesus never through this whole process, he doesn't, scold anybody well maybe he scolded thomas a little bit (laughs) you've seen and you believe great blessed are those that have not seen and yet believe so maybe he scolded thomas i'll I'll, I'll take that but the point is that um that jesus was really patient and i felt like loving with everybody like that it was just it's a it's a cool chapter it's a really beautiful chapter i think um of all these people encountering him in a different way and realizing that he's come back from the dead. Yeah, and this is coming after days of utterly crushing despair. Um, you know, I, when I imagine this, I'm thinking through, you know, the disciples and Mary Magdalene. You know, they devoted three years of their life to this guy and had been pondering his promises and seeing how he could overcome all the broken and fallen aspects of this world. He could raise the dead and he's promising eternal life and how he's going to make all things right. And then he dies and he's mm. gone and he seems like yet another one in the long line of failed messiahs. And all of their hopes, all of these strong emotions, all this tie to Jesus, and in addition to him being your friend and your master and your rabbi for three years, everything that you'd believed about life seemed like it had was crashing and burning, and they didn't quite understand what he was talking about when he promised a resurrection. But you got to imagine, like, everything in their life is crumbling. And so when Jesus comes forth 
resurrected from the dead, it would have been unbelievably victorious and and comedic and amazing and healing for yeah. them. Uh, but we we don't imagine how devastating it would have been mm-hmm. on the morning before they realized he's defeated death. You know, I uh, <laughs> it's John's understatement here. Spoiler alert: We're looking. I'm just looking ahead a little bit, but down in verse 20, when he appeared among the disciples in the locked room, it says, "Then the disciples were glad." When they saw the Lord, I'm like, yes, yeah. I bet you they I were would very so. glad when they saw the Lord. Yeah. Uh, John had a gift for understatement in that regard. So, well, let's take a look at, let's get into it. John chapter 20. Uh, we're going to, let's read through the first 10 verses and then we'll stop and comment on that. Um, now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Um, so the other the, the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, that's John. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this kind of goes to, you know, for some time now, we've been theorizing that Peter's probably the older guy, mm-hmm. <laughs> the one who's sort of in charge in dad mode. And, and so John outruns Peter to the tomb. You know, he's probably younger, fitter, faster. Um, and he stops. He doesn't go into the tomb. That seems curious to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, why do you think John stopped? Well, there's a, there's a lot of theories about why he stopped. The first, you know, and maybe the most obvious is when that tomb was sealed, uh, you know, Pilate has the, the seal of Caesar put on that tomb, which meant that if you disturbed it, you would be put to death. And so I think there's probably some of that where John comes to it and thinks, man, if we go beyond what, you know, Pilate or Caesar has set as a boundary, we're subject to the death penalty. But I think also beyond that, like being a first century Jew, entering into a tomb where you know there's a dead body would mm-hmm. probably you know, have, have brought them some fear of being defiled and going in and, and dealing with a dead body. But even beyond that, I think there's a soberness that he sees the grave clothes and they're you know, inside. You know, he is the disciple whom Jesus loved. They had this really wonderful, tender, amazing relationship between the Lord and his disciple. And I bet John is coming to it going, I'm not sure I want to see what's in here. Yeah. I, there's there's a heaviness to it. I mean, imagine you know somebody you love and you're going to the grave and the last you saw them, they were being wrapped up and you know cared for. And now it's you know the third day mm-hmm. and you're going in and you see the grave closed. You're not sure what your eyes are going to see. Um, and there would be some hesitance. John was uh, one of the ones that were that was at the foot of the cross during the crucifixion, as we're told. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, he stayed with Jesus through that whole experience. Yeah. Um, he's. It's obvious that his his heart. I mean, he had just lived through that crucifixion, seeing this person that he loved, that he mm-hmm. followed, that he believed in, um, go through all of that. And I imagine that that he that whether he whether he thought Jesus might still be in there or not. Having seen that was very traumatic for him, and he didn't want to. He didn't want to see it again. You know, yeah. Kind of I I would imagine that image would be seared into his mind. I mean, yeah. Isaiah talks about how the Messiah would be marred and disfigured beyond human recognition. Um, when when flogging is described by early church historians like Eusebius, it is unbelievably graphic and right. and awful what John would have seen Jesus suffering. And there might I think there's probably some gravity where he's coming to the tomb going, I'm not sure I want to see that again. Right. Right. Um, I think it adds to the gravity of of what Jesus suffered for us. Yeah. You know, I know that uh, it's it's popular or common when we see these scenes of Christ going to the cross that are depicted, whether it's in movies or whether it's paintings, 
and you know they they show him with some with blood running down his face but you know just a few rivlets here and there and I, i'm telling you i don't think that's how it was at all i think that no. that jesus looked like somebody who had been run over um mm-hmm. that's uh it, it was it would have been a much much tougher and more more horrid thing than that. the romans were not very careful about cosmetics when they decided to punish you no um so Peter comes up and he runs into the tomb now. <laughs> okay, I'm picturing a kind of an older, maybe a little out of shape Peter coming up huffing. He probably just couldn't stop. <laughs> <laughs> He's just charging up <laughs> right into the tomb. Um, no, no, Peter's being bold. He's being brave. Uh, you know, he is. He, this guy is so courageous. Something about this study, this life of Peter study, has been that. Every single time I have been so struck by his courage, yes, his faith failed when he was standing on the waves. When he was standing on the waves, <laughs> it got him out of the boat. Yeah. Yes, he denied Jesus three times and then followed those people and sat at the fire next to them to see what would happen to Jesus. And here's a situation where the stone is rolled away, he doesn't know what he's going to find, and he runs right in that tomb. Mm-hmm. Peter is a brave man. Yeah. And you've also got to imagine Peter, you know, the the last memory he has of Jesus is that moment when, at, right after the third denial when the cock crows and Jesus's eyes lock with his yeah. and he feels overwhelmed by the guilt and shame of his denials and he runs off and weeps bitterly. And you got to imagine he has spent the last many, many hours replaying that in his head, thinking if I could just have it back, if I could just show him how much I love him, if I could, if I could do it all over again. Right. And he's been living with this regret. And now comes this little glimmer of hope that maybe he's alive. Maybe something's happened. And Peter doesn't, in this moment, he doesn't care what the consequences are. He runs right past, you know, Pilate's seal. He, he knows what a crucified victim would look like, and he runs right in because he is desperate to be with his Savior, his Lord, again. Yeah. So we're told that when Peter came inside that he also saw the linen cloths lying there um, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with a linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Is there some – and I probably should have looked at, looked this up before we started the podcast, but is there like any kind of a significance to that? Is there an Old Testament symbolism to do with the face cloth or anything like that that you're aware of? Or Yeah, this is actually one of the things that's really uh, incredibly beautiful. You'll notice both of them take note of these folded linens. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're like, okay, well, of everything, why, why that? And – you got to remember when when Jesus died, a dead Messiah is a failed Messiah. Everybody knew that, and so Jesus had come to Peter and John. You remember Peter's first words when he's called, "Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man." Right, right, right. And Jesus has spent you know the three years pouring into Peter's life, declaring, "I'm the one who's going to overcome your sin, Peter. I'm going to save you. I'm the key to eternal life." And and so Peter has believed that Jesus was the one who was going to forgive his sin and ultimately find a way to atone for that sin. And so Peter's been spending these hours in shock and despair and grief thinking Jesus is dead and gone. Now what? So why those linens are so significant? In the Old Testament, if you go to Leviticus chapter 16 and it's verse 23 – it's outlying in chapter 16 something that the Jews celebrated going all the way back to the days of Moses uh, when the very first high priest was ordained, Moses' brother Aaron. Mm-hmm. And on the Day of Atonement, they would they would slaughter uh, animals, but one of the animals would have his blood taken into the the heart of the tabernacle. And inside the heart of the tabernacle, on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant, they would sprinkle the blood. And that blood would atone for all the sins of Israel for that year until the next day of atonement. The Jews call it Yom Kippur. But there's a command given to the high priest that is this. After you do all of the the works and you you sprinkle the blood and you, you do the atonement for the people of God, you're to take off your white linen garment that you're wearing. You're to fold it up and you're to leave it behind in the tabernacle and go out in your undergarments. Mm. Um, 
And so when John and Peter get to that tomb, you know, they're racing to see, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, is, is he back from the dead? They're probably not thinking, have my sins been atoned for? Sure. But they look in and they see the folded linens. They know what that – I mean, I'm assuming because of their amazement at seeing that, they know what that symbolizes. Oh, my goodness. He's left a message for us. Our sins have been atoned for mm. by a high priest far greater than Aaron, one who has defeated death itself. In the, in the scriptures, we learned that the wages of sin is death, and here's one who has paid those wages and has emerged victorious, conquering death itself. We finally have one who can atone for sin mm -hmm. and give us a ticket out of death. Yeah. Mm. And the other thing I've often thought about with respect to the linen cloths um, was the fact that if somebody had come in and, and stolen the body away, Mm -hmm. You know, that's a, that's kind of a, that was a theory that, that was, a, or a rumor that was spread around back then to try to counteract the, uh, the early church and the, the stories of Jesus resurrecting. Um, oh, they just, they just took his body away. Somebody stole away his body. They wouldn't leave the linen cloths behind. Yeah. I mean, they would just grab him up and take him out of there. Mm -hmm. So the fact that those cloths were left behind, I think, was, you know, was just one, you know, one evidence of the fact that, Nobody stole his body. I mean, he unwrapped these cloths and walked out of there. Mm -hmm. yeah, um, if, if you're a grave robber, you're not going to go, oh, these pesky clothes are too yeah. heavy. <laughs> Let's yeah. take the time and risk our life and limb to, to undress him. No. Especially that, because – That wouldn't make any sense. Especially because you've got somebody who's been scourged and crucified and you just want to be touching that sort of body directly. Right. Yeah, you right. don't want it wrapped up in linen cloths. Um, no, I mean, there's just so much about this that just speaks to the the actual resurrection at that point. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, I, we, we talk. I talked about this a little bit in study notes uh, at the toward, toward the end of the week when when we're when John's talking about you know he wrote all these things so that we could believe. And you know, there are skeptics even today who will say. Look, you know, Jesus' disciples just made that whole resurrection story up. They just made it up, right? Because it was mm -hmm. like to their advantage to make it up. And I started thinking about that for a little bit as I was doing study notes for this week. And I thought, that is so completely impossible for a couple of reasons. The first is that we're talking about, you know, atheist, unbelieving skeptics today who are looking back at these centuries of influence of the church over society. They're, they're thinking about the Templars converting people at the point of the sword and the Roman Catholic Church in the medieval ages when they were a political, you know, very corrupt political power. Um, and all of these things where the church has had this societal influence and they're thinking, well, clearly those disciples, right, in the first century, scared, hiding from the Jews, those people would look ahead and magically understand what the church was going to become and think, well, we better give them some <laughs> myths made up in order to help them with that. There's yeah. no way that they would. And even if you said, okay, okay, Mark, I'm just talking about their immediate benefit. They wanted to be important again. Jesus was gone. I'm like, there's not a single one of those first 11 apostles who did not meet a grisly end and mm -hmm. not one of them ever recanted on their stories regarding the resurrection or anything like that even upon pain of death they yeah. went to their death proclaiming a risen christ mm -hmm. um it's, it's if you want to convince me that those guys made it up you got to do better than that. <laughs> you know, you got to you have to you have to give me a reason why they would have made something like that up. There's just, you know, it's one of the things that makes me believe so strongly in the evidences of the resurrection mm -hmm. is that their accounts of it would not benefit them in any way. Yeah. And and you hear people say, well, you know, lots of people martyr in different faiths, but what makes this different than, you know, a, a Muslim who martyrs himself for the faith is these apostles knew 100% in one direction or the other, whether or not this was true or not. Right. They they knew it was a con job and still died, or they knew that this absolutely Jesus was raised from the dead because they saw him, they ate with him, and then they were willing to go die. For every other faith, any martyr, it's all by faith. These disciples knew absolutely whether or not what they were proclaiming to the world was true or not. 
and there are no skeptics. That's one of the other things is you don't go back into the ancient world and find any contemporary references of people saying, oh, yeah, this was a con job. This was – instead, what you find is in like the Nazareth inscription, which nobody knows about, but it's a pretty – actually a pretty amazing piece of evidence. Emperor Claudius, who's right after Tiberius, he reigns from 41 AD to 54 AD. He actually sends what's called the Nazareth inscription. It's a tablet that he sent to the city of Nazareth, which is interesting because Nazareth is kind of a podunk, redneck, backwoods Galilean town. Sure. Yeah. Nothing special. On this tablet, it says, I want anyone who disturbs graves and takes out bodies from graves, I want them put to death. Now, they believe that that tablet came from the beginning of Claudius's reign, which means if Jesus died, let's say, in the, in the early 30s, which you know we, everybody believes it's in the early 30s AD, that within a decade, the emperor is so invested in this cause that he is sending a tablet to Nazareth, because it's Jesus of Nazareth, remember, saying, do not – if anyone – takes bodies out of tombs, I want them put to death. Why in the world would the emperor of the most powerful force on the planet take the time to send an edict to a backward redneck town, you know, saying there's such a commotion going on in my empire because of some news about an empty tomb that I want it dealt with? If it was easily disproven and if nobody had seen them, this would have been put down as a joke but within a decade of the resurrection, you've got Caesar issuing edicts about bodies coming out of tombs, mm. right? Because it's well, – they called it a mischievous superstition, that it's taking over the world. You know, Within just a few decades, you'll have Nero burning an immense multitude of Christians in Rome. How in the world did this spread so rapidly? And the answer is – Jews from all over the Roman Empire, from all over the world, traveled back to Jerusalem for the Passover. And guess what happens during the Passover? Jesus is crucified. He's resurrected. And it says many people saw him. We find that in 1 Corinthians 15. And they all go back to their homelands. And surprisingly, by the time Paul is even going throughout the ancient world, the church is already exploding before he even gets there Mm -hmm. because people – witnessed this. It's hard to put the evidence down. Why in the world is the entire world being thrown upside down of this news of of a risen man? Right. Um, Because there were witnesses. And the fact that there were these, uh, you know, uh, pagan accounts of their their leaders and gods coming back from the dead – that's – I'm like, okay, and how many of those created this kind of worldwide impact? Because when people told those stories, everybody knew it was a story. Mm-hmm. When people talk about Baal coming back from the dead, that's just a, that was part of the mythology. They all mm-hmm. knew that. They all knew that it was part of the myth. Um, but and, Jesus, they're like, Jesus came back from the dead. I saw him. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that I love, you go to the, the Babylonian Talmud, the Jews themselves, who are not fans of Jesus – Talk about how he was crucified on Passover. They they affirm it. Tacitus, who's a Roman senator, affirms the events of this and and talks about how the disciples believed that he was risen from the dead. One of my favorites, one of the very, very earliest skeptics a couple of centuries after Jesus is a guy named Celsus. And in the Roman world, one of the things you find, they don't deny the resurrection. You know what they say? It was a trick. They don't deny that people saw it. They don't deny that it, you know, that it, it had a huge, enormous impact on the, in the early world. Instead, what they say is Jesus went down to Egypt and he learned to be a magician and the entire resurrection was magic. And that's the only – it was sorcery. They can't dismiss it because there were too many witnesses. And so both the Jews in the Babylonian Talmud and the skeptics – of the Roman Empire, both of which hate Jesus, can't say it didn't happen. They can't say it was mythology because too many people saw it. Instead, what they say is it was sorcery. Mm. Well, (laughs) it happened. You know, it would be quite a bit of magic to to survive Roman scourging and crucifixion and to come back the way that Jesus comes back um, and to say that that was just magic. I was just thinking that as you were saying that, I'm thinking, you know, okay, first you have to convince me that someone could survive scourging and crucifixion at the hands of the Romans if there were anybody that knew how to kill people. 
Yeah. It would be the Romans. <laughs> <laughs> they were good at it. Yeah. I mean, and I, 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 maybe I shouldn't laugh at that, but I'm just saying it, I'm laughing at the incredulity yeah. at the incredulity of this idea that the Romans would fail to kill someone that they intended to kill. Mm-hmm. If they wanted to kill you, you were dead. And they were real good at it. So, mm-hmm. well, so let's uh, let's look then at our next scenario here, and this one involves Mary Magdalene, who's the one that was came to the tomb first and saw the stone rolled away, and started this whole process. Verse eleven. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, "Woman, why are you weeping?" And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said <laughs> these things to her. Um, well, let's tell people, first of all, that maybe, maybe they're not familiar. Who was Mary Magdalene? So Mary Magdalene was um, somebody who was uh, brought to faith, I mean cured actually by Jesus. If you go into uh, Luke chapter 8, it talks about how Jesus went on and he's going through cities and villages and they are healing people that were – they had evil spirits. Afflicted by demons. Yeah, Yeah. Mm -hmm. afflicted by demons. And so Mary Magdalene is one who was cured, and it tells us that she had seven demons that were plaguing her. So she's a demoniac, um, and Jesus came by and healed her and that's and showed her great dignity. She loved him tremendously, became one of his disciples uh, who followed after him. And you, you get a very, very – she was one of the people who watched – uh, the crucifixion. She's, you know, leading this group of women to go and try to anoint his body because they never had um, a chance to. They'd had the Sabbath day, which was Saturday, kind of blocking them. And so, first thing after the Sabbath was over, she's on the way to the tomb to try to honor the body. Um, but she's got a shameful past, and so she shows up at the tomb. Um, and one of the things that that the scriptures doing, God, who is a, just incredibly beautiful in the way that he sovereignly orchestrates this to teach us so many things in this text. It says that when she's weeping, she bends down to look over into the tomb. And so remember, Peter and John had had just had their moment where they look at the folded linens and they're thinking, oh my goodness, it's the day of atonement. And Jesus is the high priest who's left his folded linens in there. And Mary gets an even greater sight. It says that she looks over and she looks into the tomb and it says she sees two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain. And it's very intentional and it says one at the head and one at the feet. And so the the image that you're getting is here you have an angel where the feet were, an angel where the head was, and in between is those linens, which would be totally drenched with blood um, from being wrapped around Jesus. And so what is she seeing? On the Day of Atonement, when they took the blood into the Holy of Holies of the tabernacle, they would sprinkle it on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And what does the Ark of the Covenant look like? Well, it is a lid of a box, and at one end, you have one angel who is spreading out his wings in the direction of another angel who's spreading his wings back over the Ark of the Covenant. And on the Day of Atonement, the priest would sprinkle the blood down on what was called the mercy seat that was in between these two angels on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And so when she looks in, she doesn't realize this probably until later, but she sees an angel at the head, an angel at the feet of where Jesus had been, and the blood in between. She's seeing the actual fulfillment of the Ark of the Covenant that was given, the instructions to build that thing were given to Moses 
1,500 years earlier when God gave Moses the law, one of his commands was to create this thing for the sake of atonement, and now Jesus has fulfilled this once and for all. There's no more day of atonement. You don't need to keep shedding blood because the Lamb of God has been slain once and for all, and his blood has atoned for sin once and for all time. And all of that is amazingly beautiful. But one of the more profound things in this passage is Peter, right? The, the chief apostle comes in and leaves. John comes in and leaves. And he reserves this site for Mary, mm. a woman, mm. right? It's, it's not Aaron. It's not from the tribe of Levi. It's not the most righteous man and the person who's got his life put together, you know, which, which is what the high priest was supposed to be. It's, it's everything not that. It's a, it's a woman, it's a, a former demoniac, probably a prostitute according to church tradition. Like she is the one who God waits and gives this image. Where were those angels when Peter and John were there? Like he waits and, and then the angels appear when she looks in. And so Jesus is doing something extraordinarily tender and beautiful with this woman who had a very broken life. Mm-hmm. He's giving her incredible honor. It's an awesome, awesome thing he's doing here. Well, and let's just say, angels notwithstanding, and I can't believe I'm actually saying angels notwithstanding, she was the first person to whom Jesus appeared. Mm-hmm. That's right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, even beyond the angels, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. He could have, mm-hmm. he, Peter and John could have run out and bumped into him if that's what Jesus wanted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. It's, it's absolutely true. Which, by the way, when you're talking about apologetic evidences, that's another reason. Like, if, if you were trying to build a case in the first century, you would have wanted the first witnesses to be Men. Right. Women weren't allowed to testify in court. Their testimony was seen as dismissive. Right. You would have wanted the witnesses to be – no, God totally defies that and he appears first to the woman. So the first witness of the resurrection is Mary Magdalene, who's not only a woman, but she's a woman with a shameful past. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it's – I also think it's you know interesting or, or, or it, I don't know, sort of uplifting that the angels and Jesus had the same question for her. Why are you weeping? <laughs> you know, it's like we understand they're in the aftermath of the crucifixion. That was the worst weekend that any of them ever had. Their leader, their friend, mm-hmm. their mentor, their Lord had been crucified. They're doubting everything that they thought they knew about him at that point. Mm-hmm. Was he really who he said he was? I mean, he he seemed so powerful. He did all these miracles. How could he let this happen to him? You know, we know they were confused about his mission to come and suffer and die. We're told that many times. We're told that again in this chapter. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they didn't really understand all of that. So we know that they had a bad weekend here. This was, you know, this was rough on them. And yet to... You know, to the angels and to Jesus and to all the heavenly host, this was a weekend of celebration. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, why are you weeping? He has risen. <laughs> this is over. It's done. And it never has to be done again. This is it. He's won. You know, it was a, in heaven, this was a celebratory weekend. This was mm-hmm. the, the darkness of the cross has given way to the light of the empty tomb. And this is a moment of massive celebration mm-hmm. everywhere except that garden <laughs> for the people that, <laughs> for the people that thought Jesus, you yeah. know, they didn't know what was going on. This was, you know, in the heavenly realms, they were celebrating as much as those angels were singing and praising God the night that Jesus was born. There was even more going on at that time. I believe. I mean, that's yeah. how I have to see it. So again, so much so that they both said to her, why are you weeping? You know, this is a time to celebrate. And I also love here the fact that she sees Jesus and doesn't recognize him. And there's been people that have talked about that too. A lot of people get into the mysticism of this mm-hmm. moment. You know, Jesus was shielding his appearance from her. And we know he did do that. He did, mm-hmm. he did do that. We're told later when he encounters disciples on the road to Emmaus that they were prevented from recognizing him. And he did these things for reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think she was just so overcome with grief and eyes filled with tears. It's not, it's probably not well lit. It's early in the morning. She just didn't, for whatever reason, when mm-hmm. she saw him, she did not recognize him until he called her by name. Mm-hmm. That, to me, is so amazingly significant because it's, 
It is such a personal thing. The, the relationship that Jesus has with all of us is this intensely personal thing. He knows you intimately. He calls you by name. He knows everything about you. And still, it's like this personal, I love you. Not you as a member of my group, as a, as a cog in my wheel. No, he loves us all as individuals. And his calling of Mary's name right then, it's like all that weight peeled away. <laughs> right then she knew what she, she immediately recognized him at the sound of her name coming out of his mouth. And I thought that was, I think that's a wonderful thing. Yeah. And there's, there again, in, in kind of the sovereign poetry, God's not only doing, um, with Mary, these kind of this celebratory thing, but even the way that this is laid out, when he the first word he speaks to her is "woman," um, which you you read and you're like, okay, well, why doesn't he start with Mary? Right. <laughs> you know, like uh, "woman," and she thinks he's a gardener. What what the gospels and the way that God has ordained the story is, it's reminding you of another story um, that goes all the way back to the beginning because the resurrection is marking a new beginning. It's a new creation. The The New Testament epistles will refer to, to Christians as a new creation, that God is making all things new, right? And so here you have the sinless man, right, whose side has been wounded. Think back to Adam and Eve. Mm-hmm. The sinless man whose side has been wounded, who has been laid down where? In a garden tomb that has been raised up. And what is his first word to Eve or to to Mary? Woman. What was Adam's first words to to Eve? I'm going to call you woman. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's saying, you know, you know, Dan Brown when he wrote the the Da Vinci Code and made a big deal about Mary Magdalene being Jesus's wife and you know the goofy Gospel of Mary Magdalene, which is totally not trustworthy. It was written hundreds of years after. Jesus and is agnostic. It's a heresy. It was created forgery. But they're on to something here because what the Bible is inviting us to see is Mary is being compared to Eve. You mm. know, the second Adam is being raised up from his slumber in a garden and being presented with a bride. But Mary represents all of us. It is, it's the second Adam being raised up in a garden being presented with a bride. Um, and that's our story. Like we share in what Mary experiences in this moment because she has been made new. Mm-hmm. Um, she is a brand new creation brought out of the wounding of the second Adam. And now this is a new garden. It's a new creation. And there's a reason why the Lord's Day, which is Sunday here, now becomes the new Sabbath because Christ has made all things new. There's a second creation, a new creation, and now this becomes our Sabbath mm. because Jesus rested from his labors on the morning of the resurrection. Hmm. And that's why we no longer celebrate Sabbath on Saturday like the Jews do. We right. celebrate it on the first day of the week, Sunday, because this is when Jesus rested from the second creation. Mm. Um, all of this is telling you that Jesus is the creator who's made a new creation in his resurrection. It's wonderful. Yeah. So there's a and, – and I had my notes for nerds this week in our study notes <laughs> about this next thing in verse 17. In the, in the King James Version, which was the Bible for 400 years, verse 17 has Jesus recorded as saying, touch me not. Um, and all the modern translations, ESV, NKJV, New American Standard, all of them translate it, do not cling to me. Um, in Greek, folks, there's something called tense mood and voice. And the tense mood and voice of a, of Greek text will tell you when something happened, uh, to whom, who was the actor, who was the recipient, uh, that kind of thing. And the tense mood and voice here that's being used, I, I, I've heard people make a big deal about the fact that Jesus say, you know, Jesus said, touch me not. That was like a, you know, his post-resurrection body. And he was, you know, she couldn't touch him. Um, and yet we know that eight days later, he's inviting Thomas to touch him. So mm-hmm. obviously that his post-resurrection body, there was nothing wrong with touching him. But the, the tense mood of voice that's being used here is not one where you say, I don't want you to do something that you might do. Stop. Don't do that. <laughs> it's a way of saying, stop doing what you are doing. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and I'm picturing that Jesus got like the biggest bear hug 
in the world. <laughs> it's like when she said Rabboni, she like wrapped him up in a hug and was not going to let him go away again. Uh, and Jesus is reassuring her. I, I have not yet ascended to the Father. I'm good. You know, I'm going to be around for a while. I'll be here for a while. You don't need to cling to me. Um, so if you've ever heard anybody talk about Jesus didn't want people to touch him, no. That's not what this is talking about. Jesus was saying, Mary, 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 you can let go. It's okay. Mary, you can let go. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's a pretty simple thing. When you look at the Greek grammar, it is a very simple thing. She, The do not cling to me is the correct translation. Don't cling to me. Don't hang on to me. But it means that she was hanging on to him. Uh, mm-hmm. So Mary had him in a bear hug. <laughs> he wasn't going to go anywhere. It's like, <laughs> I lost you once. I'm not losing you again. I'm going to hang on to you. And, and Jesus was like, it's okay. It's okay. It's yeah. Okay. And one of the things I think here is he is preparing her um, for the fact that you know he's going to be with them for yes. 40 days before the ascension. Right. But that he is going to leave again, that it's not time for the consummation of all things. Remember, in this picture of – of Jesus being the bridegroom, the consummation has not yet happened. That's going to come when, at the end, when there's the wedding supper of the Lamb and we get to become one, in, in a sense, one with Him intimately without sin and the presence of sin. Everything will be made right. But Jesus is kind of saying to her, like, I love you to pieces. He's not saying, don't touch me. You're unclean. Right. That is not what, like you said, that's not what's going on here. It's this idea of Mary. Don't cling to me too tightly because I have to go again. Right. And I love the words that he says. I want you to go to my brothers and fathers and say to them, I'm ascending to my father. And then he adds, and your father. Now think of the comfort Mm -hmm. that would have been contained in those words. Mm -hmm. Um, He is your father. All your failures, like they're taken care of. He is your father. He is my God and your God. It's it's this absolute language of comfort that's there. Mm. Um, I've I've accomplished this. I'm going to ascend to your father. He's yours now. Yeah, it's it's really wonderful. It is. It is. So the next scene that we have after the scene with Jesus and Mary in the garden, the next scene that we have is Jesus and the disciples. Uh, in verse 19, it says, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, just in case we forgot when it was, mm-hmm. the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Um, one of the one of the things I did stick in our notes this week, if you're doing mm-hmm. our personal worship, um, this is not a promise that we will have magic teleportation powers once we're... <laughs> Once we have our, our, our heavenly bodies, um, you know, but Jesus apparently did. <laughs> Whether he miraculously had a locked door open or he miraculously appeared among them, I don't know. Um, but they were in a locked room because they were anticipating that bad things could happen. Yeah, for um, sure. And then Jesus was among them. And the first thing he says, peace be with you. It's again that assurance he's coming to comfort. Like if you think all of them ran and scattered at the crucifixion, Peter's denied him. Like if 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 the Lord was vindictive and just eager for vengeance against those who failed him, um, this would be a much different story. You wouldn't have all of the comfort that's given to Peter by letting him see the folded linens and the assurance given to Mary. Tell them. Your God, your Father. And then here, where his first words to them, and they all have to be, you got to imagine, you're wondering like, oh my gosh, we totally failed. And his first words are peace. You know, like, that's just incredible, the tenderness and and kindness of God to a bunch of screw ups. (laughs) Yeah. You know, which thankfully, because we count ourselves among them, but his first words are peace. Mm. Peace be with you. And it says then that he, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Why, why do you think that was important? Why did Jesus show him the wounds from the from the cross? Yeah, well, I think it's he shows them because it's it's proving his identity for one, but it's also making sure that you don't 
confuse this with Jesus being a ghost. He's not a, a disembodied, you know, phantasm or whatever. And, and what we don't understand is in the first century, particularly in kind of a culture that had been overrun with Greco-Roman ideas, the body was seen as being wicked. It was being, it was defiled and, so when, when they when they thought of heaven, it was like, oh, please take my soul out of my body and give me a better existence where I don't feel pain and hunger and all these things that this stupid body, you know, imposes upon me. Right. But here you see Jesus not only you know makes it through the locked doors somehow, but then he shows him physical hands inside. Later, you know, a week later, he's going to tell Thomas, feel. It's it's showing you that he has not come to say, oh, you know, I. The body, God screwed up in, in the garden when he gave you a body. Really, you know, we're just, we're just souls and that's the goal. No, he's, he's redeeming the body. And so he shows them that in his resurrected state, he shows the hands, he shows the side. And so it's not just that. But now it's, it's, it's not to shame them either by saying, look what you did, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. But it's showing, this is how much I love you. Like, yeah. peace be with you. Look. Yeah. This is the cost of your forgiveness. This is what it costs for God to become your father mm-hmm. and your God and for peace to be with you. This is the measure of my love. Look at these wounds. Mm. This is what I've done for you. Mm. And the disciples were glad. Yeah, that's the greatest the understatement. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the disciples, they were glad when they saw Je- – no, I think they were probably flipping out when they realized <laughs> that it was Jesus. Uh, I would have been. You know, yeah, if, I had, sure. if I would have, if I had been somebody that had spent three years following this man and had seen this crucifixion, and suddenly he's here and he's alive, and I can see that at that moment in time, I wouldn't fear anything else ever again. Yeah, you know, that's. Uh, mm. <clears throat> and you notice the the shift in these guys happens after the resurrection. Oh, yeah. and you see they become pretty fearless yeah. in what they're willing to face for the sake of the gospel. Yeah. Yes. Um, now, so Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And I think this, of course, is talking about them, you know, what we see recorded then at the beginning of mm-hmm. Acts, them being sent out to to take this word to the whole world, to establish his church. Um, but then it says, and he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. So um, a couple questions here. Mm-hmm. First of all, does that mean that before that moment that they – had not received the Holy Spirit. I mean, that's uh, how do we understand this? That's that's where I would go with it. You know, one of the things I, I heard somebody talking. It was a, actually a, a person from Iran that had been persecuted, and they left Iran and came to America. And he was talking about the difference between the church and the United States, and the difference of the church in Iran. And one of the things he said is, in America, you do things weird. You try to to make people reach a decision on whether or not to accept Christ, and then you disciple them. Mm-hmm. And in Iran and all throughout the scriptures, you find people being discipled for years before they really understand the gospel. (laughs) And I thought, Mm -hmm. you know, that's pretty amazing. And one of the things he pointed out is he said, you know, if you took the the evangelical definition of what it means to be a Christian, to believe that Jesus died for your sins, was risen from the grave, um, you know, that he was the son of God, born of a virgin, if you were to give the test – to the disciples prior to this moment, all of them would have failed <laughs> the, the basic definition of what it means to be a Christian. They didn't understand the resurrection. They didn't get all the atonement stuff. They were totally dumbfounded by this. And it's not until this moment that they are beginning to understand mm. the death and resurrection of Christ, and it's at this moment that he breathes on them. And don't miss that because, remember, these themes of, of the garden and how Jesus is the second Adam and Mary is being brought up as this new Eve. And now all of a sudden you find Jesus, who, by the way, is God, breathing on them. Well, that's not – it's not – why would he do that? What is he communicating? Well, if you go back all the way to Genesis, the early chapters of Genesis, when God first brought Adam and Adam to life, what does he do? He gathers the dust and it forms the man and he breathes into his nostrils and he has new life, right? Right. And so what Jesus is communicating here when he takes the disciples and he breathes on them, it's kind of an uncomfortable picture, you know, like, you know, he's breathing on them and it's communicating, you have 
new life. Remember, mm-hmm. I'm making all things new. Here is a new creation. Except this time it's not saying, you know, you've never had physical life. He's saying you are being born again spiritually. You have new life spiritually, and they receive the Holy Spirit mm-hmm. at the command of Jesus at this moment. And it is a new life. They are they are raised spiritually from the dead right at this moment. Mm-hmm. That's how I have understood this also. That's what I what I think here as well. I think that because obviously there is a there's a uh, an empowering or a filling of the Holy Spirit that's going to land on these guys before the day of Pentecost. We see that talked about in Acts chapter 2. This is not that. This isn't the Mm -hmm. cloven tongues of fire and all this sort of stuff. It's – it is – you know, this I I believe is that moment where – they are, in fact, regenerated. It's mm-hmm. like that's that new life. They receive that new life. Yeah, they get it. And this is such a profound encouragement for those that are in ministry. Jesus, the greatest communicator in the history of the world, spent three years trying to teach people who were not yet converted. <laughs> you know, yeah. Three years doing unbelievable things, doing ministry with them, doing miracles with them, teaching the greatest sermons ever preached – Three years it took them to get it. Yeah. And so like and that's what this this fellow was saying when he was talking about, you know, you disciple for years and then people come to faith oftentimes. And I think that's true. Yeah. You know, you you do ministry, you teach the word, and sometimes, man, you'll be you'll be ministering a lot alongside a lot of people who don't even get the gospel, and then suddenly one day it clicks. So our final scenario here is the one with Thomas. And mm-hmm. um, again, in our study notes this week, I suggested that the that the term doubting Thomas, and we we that's been part of the American lexicon, don't mm-hmm. be a doubting Thomas, that I think Thomas might be getting an, a little bit of a bad rap in that this idea that Thomas somehow didn't want to believe, you know, because I think doubting Thomas is used that way. It's like, oh, so mm-hmm. you, you're you going to be a doubting Thomas. You don't want to believe me. I think that Thomas desperately wanted to believe. Mm-hmm. I think Thomas wanted to believe with everything in him, but he needed to see and touch. He needed to feel the Lord. You know, that was his that was his thing, but this idea that Thomas didn't want to believe, I think was wrong. So let's uh verse 24 now Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, I missed the King James by the way, Didymus, uh was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, "We have seen the Lord." But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said, he to likes Tom- that expression. He does. Well, and I always think that he's saying, he says, peace be with you. You know why he says that? Because peace is with them. He is there. Then then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. (laughs) Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This was just what he needed. He needed something more. One thing I want to say, and you got to think about this, Sam, Eight days it took before Jesus showed up again. Mm-hmm. For eight days, Thomas was was plagued by this. You know, my wife wrote the prayer guided prayer stuff for this week, and um, and in that, she's in, in her prayer. She was imagining what that was like for Thomas to wait eight days. I mean, it, it would have been pretty excruciating. It would. I mean, have everybody been. else has all of this excitement, and you just can't bring yourself to believe it. Right. And you know, part of that is it, it helps us because it shows us that these early disciples weren't these, you know, gullible, you know, outmoded kind of weirdos who believe any myth that comes along. Like, no, the one who didn't see him was like, I don't care what you say. That doesn't make sense. People don't come back from the dead. Like, he's absolutely refusing to believe it unless yeah. he you know touches the wounds or whatever right. um, one of the things that's fascinating about that eight days later and this this might be a little confusing but if you go back to first century um, they always counted the day that they were on and so this would have been the very next Sunday so mm-hmm. resurrection was on a Sunday and this is now on a Sunday 
So it's like when when Jesus is crucified on a Friday and he's raised on the third day, you would say, okay, three days after Friday should be Monday, right? Saturday, Sunday, Monday. But it's not because they counted the day they were on. So Friday, Saturday, Sunday is the resurrection day. So eight days later would really be the way we talk, seven days, because it includes the first Sunday they're talking about. But anyway, why do I bring that up? I think it's pretty fascinating that Jesus is raised – He shows up on Resurrection Sunday, and he spends time with his apostles, and then Monday comes, there's no Jesus. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, there's no Jesus. And then the next Lord's Day comes along, and Jesus shows up again. Mm -hmm. And there's part of me that wonders and thinks, I I think I land more in this camp, that Jesus is training his early apostles that he is going to show up and commune with them in a special way. On the Lord's Day. Because hmm. um, where is he on all these other days? Right. Um, and then the next time he's going to appear to them will be days later at, at Galilee. It doesn't tell us what day of the week it was, but my hunch is is that it's the Lord's Day again. And I think before he goes and ascends into glory, he is showing them, I'm going to come and commune with you in a special way on the Lord's Day. Hmm. Just a, just a theory, because mm-hmm. the six days Thomas is waiting, going, I don't believe this. Where is he? You said he, w- you said he was raised. You said he right. was raised. Where is he? You know, yeah. I'm not going to believe until I see him and put my hands on him. But it's fascinating. Jesus, Jesus is building um, that discipline sure. to expect him to be in presence with us in a special way on the Lord's Day. Yeah. So then um, we have this idea that Thomas wanted to touch him. Mm-hmm. Um, I think again that was you know the, the the disciples saying to Thomas, "We saw the Lord. We've seen the Lord," and Thomas is like, "Okay, you think you did? <laughs> no, we saw him. Okay, you saw a ghost. No, mm-hmm. he was here in the flesh." And the idea that Jesus returned bodily was mm-hmm. so important to them and to this and to us and to this mm-hmm. whole thing. I mean, his return from the grave bodily establishes the guarantee that the grave is not the end for us either. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And and again, you remember when he appeared to the apostles uh, on the day of the resurrection, the doors were locked and then Jesus is there. He does that again here. Yeah. You know, it says although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and so there's this idea, does he have a body or not? And Jesus is like, okay, I do come through doors somehow, but the Bible is is giving us this this understanding. But touch me, I'm physical. I'm one of you. I am, in a sense, married to humanity for all eternity. The Son of God was a spirit right alongside God the Father and God the Son. And one of the most amazing things is that when Jesus becomes a man, he is forever tied and associated with us. His humanity doesn't cease when he ascends into heaven. He remains a man. He remains one of us. He advocates for us. He's he's become one of us. And so, you know, he's like, put your hands in my side. Feel me. I'm one of you. It, you know, in the next chapter, we're going to see he sits down and eats a meal with them. You know, ghosts don't eat fish. <laughs> right. You know. He's showing them how he, you know, he's not only accomplished our redemption, but he's showing us, I continue to relate to you. Right. I'm one of you. I'm, I have a body, mm-hmm. which is remarkable that God would do that. I mean, it's un, it shows his commitment to us. You know, I've, I read somebody talking about how at the incarnation, we think of the cross as this great fall, which it is, where God descends and he becomes sin and he, he endures this kind of humiliating circumstance. But we don't think of Christmas as being that same kind of descent where – but it is in a sense where God, who has everything, in a sense – descends he sets aside so many of his privileges and pleasures to come into this world and it's at that moment at the moment of the incarnation where he says i am going to permanently and forever bind myself to humanity so that i'm the one who defeats death and when he ascends into heaven a human who is god is going <laughs> to burst through the doors of heaven to claim that is our our place of residence. He's our representative in in all of this. But humanity, he he redeems it all by taking it upon himself and doing it perfectly. Mm. It shows his level of commitment and faithfulness to us. It's it's pretty wonderful. 
One other thing that I like about this story with Thomas here is that uh, I look at this and I just see how beautiful it was because Jesus, he didn't come in and, and he didn't come in and start scolding Thomas. For, furthermore, by the way, he, Jesus shows up and what he shows is that Jesus has the power of Alexa and Siri because he heard, he'd heard what Thomas had said. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> not only does he have teleportation powers, but he does know everything we think and say. Mm-hmm. Um, that omnipotence thing and om- omniscient thing showing up here. Um, but he did, you know, he didn't scold him. He showed up and, the, and he said, peace be with you, and then turned right to Thomas and said, go ahead and touch me. <laughs> um, that's, but that's so beautiful because I'm a guy that's filled with doubts. Mm-hmm. I have doubts all the time. I, I, did I, do I really think that? Do I really believe that? Am I crazy? How can I am constantly second guessing myself? I am a doubt doubter. I'm a doubtful guy. I'm a skeptic by nature. Mm-hmm. Me too. Um, and so I look at this and I see how gently and, and lovingly and patiently Jesus deals with Thomas. And much like, Peter encourages me because Peter is that bold kind of guy that charges in (laughs) and knocks down all the China. And Jesus goes, Peter, come on, come on, Peter. Um, What he's doing now to Thomas, where he says, Thomas, come here, touch me. Yeah, that is so precious for somebody like me to read. You know, and one of the things that, that Thomas has in addition to this, you know, skepticism that he's expressing is I think we get Thomas all wrong. You know, we, you, you mentioned we call him Doubting Thomas, but I think the opposite is actually true. Um, Thomas is the one whose faith has been so zealous. Like he's head and shoulders above the apostles. When you find him elsewhere in the, in the earlier in the Gospel of John, for instance, when, when Jesus is called, you know, to, to go and to heal Lazarus and he waits and he says, okay, let's go to Judea. What do, all of the disciples say, Rabbi, the Jews were just seeking to stone you. You're going there again. In other words, what they're saying is, I'm not going there. Like, I don't want to go there. They were just trying to kill you. It's Thomas who speaks up and says, let us go also that we may die with him. And so I think Thomas is so sold on the Jesus thing. He has been all in. Like, I'm, I'm ready to die with you. Just kind of like Peter. Like, I'm in. I'm all in. I'm zealous for this. That when – the crucifixion happened, you had this on-fire intensity for Jesus that was smashed because Thomas could not make sense of it. And I think when you have that kind of fervent faith that runs up against something that God has done or allowed in your life that you can't make sense of, it is especially debilitating. And it can create in you a knee-jerk skepticism where you're not going to trust again because you put yourself all out there on the line. You were all in, and then something happened where you're like, I'm not going to expose myself to that kind of vulnerability again because that hurt And I think Thomas is that guy who's like, I'm not going to trust again. I'm not going to trust until I can absolutely 100% prove it. And Jesus shows up and says, if you need that, go for it. Mm. And I love that Thomas doesn't need to do it. Mm. He doesn't need to do it. He doesn't. It doesn't say. And Thomas put his fingers. In, he just says, "Oh my, there you are, my Lord right. and my God." Like, I'm in. Yeah. It doesn't say that Thomas touched him. Jesus mm-hmm. offered, but Thomas just declared his faith. Well, he said Jesus responds to him. You have believed because you have seen seen yeah. me. Yeah. You didn't touch. You've seen me. But imagine this. You wanted to touch, but you only got to see. Imagine how blessed are those who've not even seen. Yeah. And yet have believed. They didn't touch. They didn't see. They yeah. just believe. Well, normally when we end a podcast, either, you, either you've got a good word that we end on. Very occasionally I'll have the good word that we end on. But <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull editor's privilege here and I'm going to let John have the good word that we end on. Because verses 30 and 31 are the wrap up for this whole chapter, for these for each of these scenes that we have looked at, folks, where we have seen somebody who has encountered Jesus in a different way, you know, Peter and John finding an empty tomb, Mary finding him outside in the garden and hearing him call her name, the disciples in the, in the locked room, Thomas in the other locked room, all of these things, all of these encounters are slightly different, but they all are the same thing. It's all about Jesus encountering people and them believing that he has returned from the dead. So... 
John wraps up with this. He says, now Jesus did, verse 30, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And that is a good word. (laughs) That is a great word. Uh, And I think that's the word we're going to end on. Uh, We hope that you have enjoyed your time with us this week, that it's been profitable for you. Welcome back, Sam. Nice to have you back. Uh, Nice to have you back sounding like yourself again. You you were sounding pretty rough there for a while, man. I didn't know if you were going to survive that ear infection. Yeah, Uh, I'm I'm still about 60% in the left ear, but it's it's getting better. Okay, well... Welcome back. And uh, so if you'd like to correspond with us, folks, if you uh, just want to send Sam a get well card, uh, you can do so. <laughs> Our email address is outofwater at com. That's R-I-O com, where you can find the whole back catalog of the Out of Water podcast at com slash outofwater. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, on Google Podcasts, or on Spotify, and also in our Rio Vista Church smartphone app. We'll be back next week with more from the life of Peter, and we look forward to seeing you then. We hope you enjoyed your time with us, and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater.com.